I think you said it perfectly when, you know, uh, it's an industry full of secrets where there are no secrets, really. Everything does kind of come out in the wash eventually, uh, it seems like. And that's because, yeah, the people who want this information to come out will will put it out there, whether it's, you know, letting me know who can sign what works, which are, you know, obviously very tightly kept secrets. But the, 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 <laughs> the info comes out one way or another most of the time. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Nate Freeman writes a weekly column for Vanity Fair. Over his career, he has made the evolution from reporting for Art News, Artsy, and Artnet to writing a column that combines gossip with profiles of the many fascinating characters in the art world. In this podcast, I ask Nate how he reports his columns. We talk about the growing fusion of the fashion and art worlds, his impressions of the current state of the art market, and where the art world lies now that New York has become less essential. I hope you enjoy it. Nate Friedman, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, so excited to be here. This is great. So I have this vision of a day in the life of Nate Freeman, and I'd like you to tell me that it's correct. I'm thinking you wake up around 11, 11.30, go through some emails, do some texts, head out to some galleries in the afternoon, have cocktails in the early evening, stop by a dinner, maybe go to an auction or an art fair, and then it's party, party, party till about two in the morning when you slide back home, maybe take some notes, longhand, I'm thinking, on a big yellow pad with a uh, fountain pen or in a bound book. And then the next morning, you're up and at it again. Tell me I'm right, Nate. <laughs> uh, well, that certainly has historically been the case. Some nights and some days, uh, I've certainly uh, you know, had many a day exactly like that. Uh, but also at the same time, you know, uh, I'm on the grind first thing in the morning, too. Um, it's, uh, you know, a lot of work to put this thing together and, you know, just being part of a team at VF it's it's, you know, it's a full-time job. So I gotta be, you know, on the ball early in the morning, most days too. So the genius of what you are doing now at Vanity Fair, which you, um, sort of really clicked in, in a, uh, a slightly earlier phase was combining the sense of a man about town gossip column, and there's a long history of those in uh, New York, with the art world. Now, some of that may just be that the art world has finally kind of come into its own as being almost like uh, the center of uh, a certain kind of social life in New York, maybe just before the pandemic. It feels like maybe that's going to uh, return. So, so talk to me about the combination of doing gossip and real reporting. Not that gossip isn't real reporting, works. I mean, you've got a lot of people out there, some who just want to get something out, others you're getting things out of them. What's the ecosystem like? Well, uh, that's a great question. I, I think that the way in which gossip reporting really 
interacts with the art world is a, is a pretty fluid, easy thing. And if you're hitting upon the right subject, you're doing sort of gossip reporting in the process of putting together a larger story. And I think that many little smaller bits of, of gossip can sometimes like come together to make a larger story that really does speak to where the art world is, what's happening in you know, not just the market, but within the entire ecosystem. In terms of just reporting that, I mean, it, it's just, you know, putting in the hours and being on the ground. I, I think that like, if you ask someone like point blank a question, they're not going to always answer. But if you just sort of are around observing constantly, uh, you know, having discussions, conversations, these things come out in, in drips and in drops. And then you can start to put together a entire column or story based on these sort of bits of, of things that you get over the course of a night, a week, a month. So it's the old reporters gathering string, putting into a, a big ball or tying it in knots. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do now, especially when, you know, the column as we've structured it, there's one longer lead item that really functions as its own story rather than just like a gossip item per se. It's it's more of just like a long form sort of article. Uh, they usually clock in, you know, like 1500 words, 2000 words. And then I'll have smaller things underneath them. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm just gathering string for that the purpose of one sort of idea, whether it's, you know, going through the Venice Biennale, trying to follow the dollar, mostly by going to fashion world lunches and dinners, or if it's, you know, sort of chasing down leads about, you know, one particular lot in an auction. It, it all just sort of combines to put together one narrative, if that makes sense. I, I want to get to the fashion in, in a second, because I think that's what well, you did a brilliant column recently about it. And I think that's one of the kind of cruxes of what's made the art world suddenly sort of the centerpiece of uh, social life after many years of always being there. But I first wanted to get back to this question about um, the reporting. The art world is a notoriously secretive place where nothing stays secret. And you're part of that process. And uh, I, I guess I'm curious, do you sort of, when you're gathering string and, and have a, a tidbit, use that to sort of prompt people to give you more information? Or is it everyone settling scores? Someone wants you to know who can sign that work or who bought that work because either they missed out on it or they have a score to settle against that, that person or they're just promoting themselves. They want the world to know that, you know, they were involved in this big deal. Yeah, I mean, definitely I'm aware of the score settling aspect of it. And I know that I have this information from this one person because of another thing that happened. I try to be cognizant of that. At the same time, if the information is good and, you know, it's worth reporting on, you got to just kind of go with it. That's the job. Yeah, exactly. So so even if you're doing someone's bidding, you know, obviously, you know, unconsciously, you know, it's just kind of part of the, the, the entire ecosystem, like I said. I think you said it perfectly when, you know, uh, it's an industry full of secrets where there are no secrets, really. Everything does kind of come out in the wash eventually, uh, it seems like. And that's because, yeah, the people who want this information to come out will will put it out there, whether it's, you know, letting me know who can sign what works, which are, you know, obviously very tightly kept secrets. But the, 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 <laughs> the info comes out one way or another most of the time. Well, uh, here's a good example. You had the number on the uh, price paid for the Orange Maryland, and uh, you checked it because you said you had more than one uh, source. 
and I just thought that was a great example of, you know, the number was moderately known, but you were able to kind of narrow it down to a specific uh, number, which to, to me is a, just a sign that, that, you know, ultimately nothing's a secret in this world. Right. I mean, and that was just a matter of talking to enough people who were familiar with the actual transaction and were present or, or saw the paper indicating how much was actually spent on that. And yeah, I think that was a really good tidbit to get. So uh, let's go back to fashion, because you just wrote this great Balenciaga uh, on the New York Stock Exchange uh, column. And by the way, did you ever figure out whether you were on the actual exchange floor or on a set that was built there? <laughs> it was the actual exchange floor, uh, which I'm still blown away by. But yeah, it really it really was. It didn't seem necessarily like that could be possible just because it's such a famous place that no one's ever been to, uh, you know, unless you're a trader. Uh, but yeah, it was the real floor. But you also made a connection to, what was it, seven years ago, I think, uh, a, an event. So you've been following this, you know, melding of the art and fashion wor worlds, which only seems to get more and more uh, intense. I've forgotten which one of the brands, but like built a whole structure in Venice, not during the Biennale, but a, a year or two ago and imported everyone to Venice for their um, mostly influencers, but, you know, imported them to Venice for a fashion show, which just shows that, you know, art and fashion are kind of right on top of each other these days. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, while there has been overlap in the past, what's happening is the people who are in charge of these fashion conglomerates, whether it's Caring or LVMH or, or Prada, you know, they have become so involved in the art world through collecting, through opening private museums, that it just sort of trickles down. And at the same time, the markets uh, are, are just overlapping in so many ways. And clearly people who are in Venice for the opening of the Biennale are also going to be the ones who are, they have the purchase power to, you know, buy luxury items uh, that, that you know, Prada or, or Chanel or Louis Vuitton are, are selling. And so it just makes sense from a synergy perspective. And at the same time, you know, I, I think I said this in uh, the column at the Venice Biennale, you know, the amount of money that just LVMH uh, made in profits in the year 2021 was bigger than the entire art market. So we're dealing with something that could swallow us alive if we wanted to. And, and, and that's something that you have to be cognizant of when you're just thinking of the global art market, that these luxury houses have really amassed so much capital and so much power over the, over the last really just a few years. Um, the, the pandemic has just strengthened their numbers and, and it, they're real behemoths that they, they have to just sort of you know be reckoned with. But which side is it on? Is it the, I mean, the designers are clearly very interested in either several of them have gone on to become artists uh, in the recent years, and many of them are collectors, uh, uh, you know, who go through cycles of buying and selling, the, the most famous being the YSL sale. But we also, Kering's owner is also Christie's uh, uh, owner, so I'm assuming it's a lot on the business side, or is it just sort of free-for-all? Well, I, I wouldn't want to characterize it as a free-for-all. I, I think it's more just, you know, different levels of collecting and connoisseurship. Um, like, yes, Raf Simmons, who is the designer of Prada alongside Misha Prada, is a great collector. He goes to a lot of art fairs, openings. He's very close to a lot of artists. He's not quite a collector on the level of Misha Prada or, or uh, Monsieur Arno, like, but he's very passionate. And I think it does inform his collections. Uh, he's very close to the artist Sterling Ruby. And when he was at Calvin Klein, he would collaborate with Sterling on, on sets and even uh, you know have his work sort of inform the clothes uh, in really interesting, daring uh, 
uh, really groundbreaking ways. I was at one of the, the Calvin Klein shows, I think this was, this was 2017. Uh, and it felt like a true art event, really, because it, you know, all these incredible works by Sterling were all throughout the runway. There was a lot of art world people there in attendance. And so, yeah, you have it from the bottom up also, uh, not just the top down. So you have the designers being influenced by artists, collecting artists, hanging out with artists, and that is represented on the runway. So, so I think instead of a free-for-all, we're talking about how it's happening from the top down, where it's the owners of these fashion brands collecting, being involved in the art world, and also from the bottom up, where you know the product itself is so steeped in the art world. And then there's this very large demimond that follows it around with all sorts of interested parties down to hangers-on, and obviously the parties that uh, everyone ca- congregates at, at, and you are doing such a great job of uh, chronicling. Is that just what creates the cool factor, you know, the sense that you're missing out or this is where the the cool people are and that burnishes both the artists, the galleries and the brands? Or is it that like this really is where the creativity is taking place? This is, you know, Max's Kansas City 50 years later. That's an apt kind of comparison. It's like I think that the art world uh, is intrigued by the fashion world. Maybe they think it's glamorous in a different kind of way. I know at least I am and I know a lot of other um, people in the art world like who were invited to that Balenciaga show, they were very excited to be at the Balenciaga show because it's just something that they haven't really experienced. Whereas, you know, I talked to some of the, the you know, retail buyers or the fashion journalists or fashion PR, and they were, they were a little jaded by it. They were like, we've seen Balenciaga shows before, uh, you know, and it goes the other way too. It's like, you know, um, at the opening of, of Freeze or Basel, where we're just hanging out, talking to the dealers we know, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you'll see someone from the fashion world just so excited to be there at the art fair on the opening day. You know, I think that it's just two industries that are, you know, very comfortable with each other and also just like uh, there's a deep mutual respect and interest uh, among both of them. And I think that, yeah, it's, 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 it's cool to be invited to a fashion show if you're in the art world and vice versa. I think if you're, you know, um, in the fashion world, you want to know what's happening in galleries in London and Berlin and New York, and you want to know what works are selling for at auction. Uh, I think it's just a mutual respect and interest thing. So speaking of work selling at auction, you've had a couple of weeks to digest uh, the May sales, and I'm assuming you're you're getting yourself geared up to go to Basel uh, next week. Uh, what is your sort of take on the market in between uh, New York and Basel? Well, uh, I mean, you know, I think on the face, the market is, is, is very strong. I, I don't think there's anything to be concerned about. There was a pretty, you know, profound lack of bidding at the very highest level. You know, in the Maryland that we talked about, while it sold for an astounding price, it didn't go quite as high as some people anticipated. Uh, I think there were a few other lots that didn't quite capture the attention of the top, 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 top of the market. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have such, you know, an incredible array of Biennales that are currently open between New York and Venice and now Berlin. Um, we have amazing prices uh, and records notch for younger artists. And I think that between, you know, exposure in, in Biennales, uh, all over the world, uh, these headline uh, generating prices for younger artists, especially younger female artists, uh, that is going to create a, a bit of a frenzy for certain artists in Basel and also uh, 
opportunities for people to sort of find the the, the next wave and what you know the next new artist that might you know be on the mess of plots come next week um i think that yeah so while the highest high set in the market may not be you know exploding uh there's so much excitement around sort of certain artists and um you know certain price points that i think that the market is is looking pretty strong um we'll have to see after next week and then of course after the sales in london to really have a final say in what the market is like going into the summer but it seems pretty strong what do you think uh, well, I was just going to ask you, you know, you speak to a lot of art advisors, I'm assuming, and a lot of dealers. And uh, I, I don't know, I also think, a lot, uh, especially at Vanity Fair, a lot of collectors would want to bend your ear and make sure that they're, um, you know, getting to you first before someone else gets to you. Uh, so I was just sort of curious to get a sense of, of sort of what you're hearing uh, from them. I mean, look, I, you know, it's always especially when you talk about Basel, it's always hard to gauge how much of what you're being told is been packaged and set up uh, and how much is really, you know, uh, surprising uh, events and, you know, strong numbers and triangulating between the, the, the sales uh, is also part of the trick. I mean, it, it certainly feels like, and I guess is the other dimension of Basel that we haven't talked about is this is the first real Basel in three years now, I can't even remember how long it's uh, uh, been. Uh, so it's like there's a there's been a big reset, and it'll you know traditionally it's the place that everyone saves their best stuff for, and all the biggest buyers uh, are, are at. Uh, and I'm curious whether that's still the case. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you know even though this is the first real Basel in three years, it's unclear whether any collectors from Asia will be making the trip. Um, you know, so you might be missing out on a large portion of the market. I think that anecdotally, there seem to be somewhat fewer Americans who are planning on going, uh, both because maybe they were just in Venice a month or two ago, um, or there's just travel fatigue uh, in general. Um, but I'm sure there'll be an incredibly strong showing from European collectors who have been waiting for Basel to come back in full for three years. Um, and uh, I, I don't see why dealers wouldn't bring their best stuff to Basel. From looking at the previews, there seem to be some incredibly, you know, big things coming. No one's holding back, from what I can tell. So, well, uh, anything in particular you that you struck your eye in in the packing list? <sighs> oh man, um, I, I mean, I <laughs> personally, I'm I'm really excited for these. The, this, I, I guess, it's a two uh, gallery. Um, presentation of works by Wolfgang Tillman's at Unlimited uh, it, between David Zwerner and I think Gallery Buchholz. That is going to be amazing. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of awesome uh, Wolfgang Tillman's leading up to his show at MoMA in the fall. Um, but no, honestly, there's so many previews. I've just spent this weekend going through all of them. Uh, it's gonna, it's just, just too much. Let's switch gears uh, once again. The one thing I always expected to see more of in your column in Vanity Fair, which is Dime Square, my favorite subject. <laughs> always down to talk about Dime Square. I spent a lot of time there this week, actually. Um, I went to the, the new hotel uh, and had dinner there, which is quite nice. I went up to the roof and saw the incredible view. I've been looking at this rooftop for 15 years, and now you can finally go up there, uh, which is pretty exciting. Wait, wait, wait. I, I had this fantasy that you were living in Dime Square, that you were the bard of Dime Square. No? 
<laughs> well, I I certainly spent a lot a lot of time there. I moved a few a few blocks away. I'm I'm a ten minute walk now. I'm not living in the belly of the beast anymore. Oh well, so you know, uh, most people in New York would say they're in the neighborhood if they're even like within uh, uh, any sort of reasonable distance uh, uh, of it. You know, if you're if you're not on the Upper East Side, you could probably claim you're still in Times Square. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just spent so much time living in the middle of it that the fact that I'm a 10 minute walk away feels somewhat removed, but of course it's not. Is that just a, a media creation more than anything else? Or is it really a scene? Uh, you know, it, uh, it... It's it, it's a great question because it, it's kind of both, right? It, 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 it is this media creation. The name itself is an inside joke. Uh, you know, it, it never really was supposed to mean anything, but I guess it was kind of this sort of like, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that like, you know, the more that it was joked about, talked about, people started taking it seriously, you know, uh, it's kind of like a, a logistically a great place to hang out. It's in between, you know, the Lower East Side East Village and Tribeca. Uh, so naturally a lot of people who work at galleries or show galleries or go to galleries are going to end up there because it's just convenient. Um, and so it kind of just like, wasn't a real thing. And then all of a sudden it was. Uh, so like, even if the media kind of just invented the scene, they, they did it. It worked. <laughs> well, it, it feels almost like a meme, you know, something that started as a, a joke and ends up being taken seriously. And just because it is taken seriously takes on a life of its own. It, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I, I've taken on the, uh, the attitude that my friend, the artist Andrew Quo has, which is just like, you know what? Like, it's fun to hang out there. There's some great bars and restaurants. Like, if you really want to hate on it, like, just just stay away. You know, it can be fun if you just give, give into it. And, um, you know, from talking to, you know, people who you know, have businesses there, everyone seems very pleased with the new situation, even if it's going to be a little more overrun now that there's a luxury hotel there. I think that, you know, it, it's still very pleasant to hang out there, especially if the weather's nice and you can sit outside. Uh, so though though it's not in Dime Square, you don't have to make a um, reservation at Lucian if you uh, don't want to. Nobody's forcing you. Tell me just in in general terms of that whole, not just that environment, but all, all of the art world, who's up and who's down? Ooh, who's up and who's down? Let's see. Um, I mean, who who is? Let, okay, what should we start with? Should we start with who's up? Let's start with who's who who's up, and I'll give you one, and you can tell me whether you agree with it or not. The sort of uh, somewhat surprising uh, return to visibility of Larry Gagosian, who had been kind of uh, uh, less prominent both at auctions and though he has a large business, is not he himself uh, so talked about or gossiped about in your sort of your pages over you know let's say the past four or five years, and suddenly there uh, all anyone talks about is Larry Gagosian. You kind of, yeah, hit the nail on the head. My old colleague and good friend, Andrew Russith, tweeted uh, a few weeks ago. He said, is anyone having more fun in the art world right now than Larry Gagosian? It seems like he's kind of having a blast. Like, you know, he just signed Ashley Bickerton, an old friend of his who is kind of having a resurgence. And it just seemed like he just did it like like just to do it. He's having lunch with with Jordan Wolfson, who he also just signed, even though he's still with David Zwerner. Uh, and and Julia, Jamie and Giuliano Villani is, is at this lunch. They're all drinking. It seems like it's a blast. He's really embracing a new generation in a way that I think he hadn't. And he's also just very present. I mean, he's, you know, dating this this really fun young artist 
Uh, they're both very present on the scene. Um, I, I, I find them really, really pleasant to hang out with, um, you know, and I feel like he's softened a little bit, maybe, uh, you know, he's just like, he's really, he's really just enjoying life. And, and the gallery is really doing great because of it. And then the rest of the big four, Hauser, Zwerner, and Pace? Well, um, I, it, it's tough to say if any of them are like down necessarily. I mean, all of them are just expanding like crazy, adding artists in their own right. I wish I had some some juicier things to say about about one of the mega galleries. It doesn't seem to me like any of them are doing noticeably poor, though. I mean, you know, both Hauser and uh, Zwerner are about to open spaces in Los Angeles. Pace, of course, took over Kane Griffin, not to mention Pace's new gallery in London. All of them are gearing up for what looks like a huge fall and a huge 2023. I mean, like, you know, how can you really knock Hauser when, like, you know, their entire staff is about to go to a tiny, beautiful island in Spain for a Rashid Johnson show. Like, that sounds great. You know, I think that they're all doing, doing pretty well. I wish I had but, some... But we were talking for years about all of this sort of competition among them and convergence and that, the you know, the, they were going to overshadow all these other galleries. And they've become very different businesses. Hauser has this whole, you know, uh, hospitality business concept. Uh, Pace has been trying to get into multimedia stuff in a bunch of different ways in digital art. Um, you know, that leaves sort of Zwerner and Gagosian still very much focused on having a broad footprint and lots of artists, but there's still lots of artists who are kind of working with everyone or, or, or doing it on their own uh, uh, terms. I think it's, well, it's also important to note that both, um, you know, Zwerner and Gagosian have art advisory firms that kind of operate not within the gallery, but like sort of within the, the larger gallery umbrella. Um, and Zwerner also has Platform, which is selling, you know, works of art through smaller galleries, which is a controversial, but I think, you know, overall pretty positive uh, program that they've managed to pull off. Uh, but yeah, to your point, like the mega galleries have sort of carved out their own niches. Um, and I don't know who is going to, you know, win the battle royale at this point. I mean, uh, it seems like Gagosian is had more of an upward swing in the last year than the other four, but everyone is is just, you know, uh, doing pretty well, it seems like. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's less competition among them and more that they found kind of their lanes. What's more interesting is that there was a band of um, mid-sized but still global galleries below them, uh, some of them surviving, some of them, you know, not, you know, you mentioned or local galleries like uh, Kane Griffin getting absorbed into to them. And then there is a, a whole group of these um, sort of tastemaker galleries that seem to be thriving uh, and, and just sort of one after another, an artist comes out of uh, a couple of the particular uh, galleries. I mean, I think of Night in L.A., I think of Karma, uh, in New York, uh, give, give me a couple others or, or comment on both of those. Well, I think that, yeah, what Night Gallery and Karma have been able to do is sort of just take their scrappiness and, and not abandon it, you know? I mean, Night Gallery was literally a gallery that was only open at night, you know, and Karma was a book publishing house that sometimes had shows. And uh, both of them, like, seized upon their sort of, you know, unique ethos and, uh they managed to, to not sell out while expanding, if that makes sense. Like yeah. both of them have very, very fleshed out identities. And uh, it makes a lot of sense when they bring a new artist on or discover a new artist. And 
um, there's a consistency to the shows that they do. Um, and yeah, and I mean, they're two galleries that I always enjoy visiting greatly. And they, yeah, they also have you know experience of sort of grooming artists that then outgrow them um, as any sort of pacemaking gallery does. But the new model is your your artist outgrows you but still sticks around. I mean, the, the, there's this weird thing where, you know, uh, Nava started at, uh, at night, is now at uh, Pace, but is still having a show. Even after it's announced, there's still a show at, uh, at night. There's this kind of thing where everyone's all together. Yeah, it's it's pretty great, actually. I mean, it, it in, in some ways, it's kind of reached its parody when, when you know, Jordan Wolfson can announce that he's joining Gogian, but still staying with Swerner. Uh, but at the same time, like, if everyone wins, I guess that's good. It's kind of ridiculous to get these press releases about, you know, like an artist joining another gallery when they already have four other galleries. But, but you know, I mean, I guess that is the new model. It's like instead of using these smaller tier galleries in order to make it to the top and then, you know, uh, slough them off, you can just keep everyone in the mix as much as you can, I guess. So you spent a couple of months this uh, winter in L.A., you you, you want to give me sort of your sense of the difference between the you know art worlds in LA and New York? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's impossible for the art world in LA to ever be as just overwhelmingly busy, prosperous, just frenetic, uh, and and just energizes New York. Just because the cities are different, um, you know, geographically and temperamentally, uh, which is which is great. I think that, that is good that those cities are different. Plus, you know, New York is is where all the auctions are. Uh, and so that's not going to change anytime soon. I, I know that auction houses have HQs out in LA now, but they're never going to be the center of the American art market like New York is. That being said, LA has become an integral place for galleries to have you know presence at, in. And I think that that that's really only happened in the last two or three years, maybe four, I guess. Um, and so to be able to spend time out there and not have to cram all of the gallery going into like a weekend or something was actually amazing and really eye-opening because you can sort of treat the city not as a place that you're visiting, but a place that you're living in. And um, what LA does so well is they bring you in like with open arms in a way that that New York doesn't just because, you know, you, you could just be passing through a gallery and you, and you see each other and that's it. But in LA, everything is a, is an event. It's a, you know, it's a, a wonderful moment of reflection. So like when I go to night gallery, I'm not just going and seeing a show. I'm sitting with Davida, like, you know, like, like having a cigarette, having a beer, like really talking about, uh, you know, the art, the, the shows that are up, the shows that are coming up next. And uh, it's a really different, wonderful way of, uh, having an art market. And I think that it's worked out really well for galleries out there because things are slower, things are, you know, you have a little bit more time to process things and it makes for a really, really incredible art world experience, if that makes sense. No, no, I, I, like I said, I, the, everything seems to not so much be gravitating there, there, but sort of expanding to be, you know, a foot in both places, even as it becomes, we now have all this presence in Seoul, we have these sales in Hong Kong. I mean, the, the art world is becoming actually more like Los Angeles in the sense that there are lots of nodes, but no center uh, anymore. I mean, New York is still the center, but I, I'm not sure that that will still be the case in five or 10 years. 
Right. I mean, and the lots of nodes with no center thing in LA, I think when you spend a lot of time there, it just doesn't really bother you that much because you're like, okay, well, I'll do this part of town like this weekend, this part of town the other weekend, sort of just like see as much as you can. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, you know, the movie business and, and the music business are, are very much centered in Los Angeles and you're seeing a huge number of collectors emerging from those industries, kind of similar to like the fashion world in that like, you know, there's so much overlap. And when I was there, you know, LACMA did this this show with Jimmy Iovine where, you know, artists that like, you know, show musicians who had been in Interscope for a long time had their albums painted by artists. And it was this real collision of the music industry and the art world like that had never really been seen before. And it was a huge hit. Like it made a lot of sense. And, and I don't know if that could have been pulled off 10 years ago. There just wasn't the interest in every art among people in the music industry. Same thing was, you know, at every opening or dinner, there was people, you know, musicians there. There were record label executives. There were, you know, a lot of people from the industry. Of course, the people in the movie business have always been collecting, you know, that goes back to Ovitz and even earlier. But I think that the ever expanding music industry in Los Angeles, getting into art really makes it integral to have a gallery there. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of finance capital there too. I mean, there's some big money players. Uh, uh, Broad was was a, a home builder, but he was also an insurance. Probably made a lot more money out of his insurance business than he did um, uh, build it being home. So and, and there's plenty of those guys out there too. It's it's a little bit less sexy, but yeah. <laughs> so so last question. I I always think that one of the things that attracts people the most to the art world, but also repels them is the the idea that it's like this uh, swashbuckling free-for-all filled with pirates and skullduggery and you know every time you write a story about uh, was it Zuko faking a pettibon or Amoako Boafo's uh, market shenanigans I always think it's one of those things that people overdosing on heroin and all the other the junkies run out and try and get the same uh, uh, stuff because like they, they can everyone wants to feel like they're sort of part of it. But it's also it, it makes it hard for people to, to do when you're doing those kinds of stories. Do you find that people are um, afterwards? You know, scandalized or attracted. I mean, Boafo's market has has certainly only gone uh, up from from that story. And you would have thought most people would have said, "Hey, I want nothing to do with this after your story." Yeah, I think that what's fascinating is that the people who are attracted to uh, this industry, in terms of like getting the nitty gritty and really getting in the, in the shit of all of it, like this stuff does attract them to it. They're like they want part of this like semi. Uh, illicit action you know uh i think that if you're on the outside you're firmly on the outside and you're like this is just a horribly corrupt <laughs> you know just like like rat's nest or whatever um but i think that the boaco market exposing that and the fact that it, it 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 continued to thrive just shows that people are willing to get down in the dirt you know uh if that's what's required this is a very heavily unregulated industry it seems like it's going to get less regulated you know now that you know the auction houses don't have to follow the local rules in new york now that the new york rules have been repealed right so like you know after all these years of calls for you know more regulation in the art market it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen uh in, unless it, you know you think otherwise and i think that's part of the appeal for people you know like whether you're you're you know, on the collecting side or on the dealing side, like there is a kind of Wild West aspect 
to it that is so intoxicating for some people. And it's fun to write about, of course. Look, I don't, I mean, I don't think there's going to be an increase of regulation. I mean, uh, whatever happened in New York, which remains a mystery, um, ideally wouldn't change much because these are big businesses and they would prefer to be have transparency and some level of, hey, it's not us. You, we can't do that for you, you know, consigner client, because they won't let us not, you know, we just prefer not to do, do that. Um, I think the bigger problem is is the what people want in terms of regulation. I mean, all, all commercial transactions are regulated. Fraud is still fraud. A lot of the bad things that happen in the art market are illegal. Look at Inigo uh, Philbrick. I mean, there's plenty of private transactions in the world, in real estate and all sorts of other things that uh, have the same sort of handshake deals and other problems that, that created people like Michelle Cohen or uh, Inigo Phil Philbrick. I, I think what people want when they talk about regulation is something that's sort of the business to be more like retail. And I think that's part of the problem is if it's retail, it's not art, and then it immediately loses uh, its uh, appeal. And and one of the reasons we've got these big galleries is that they can create something that's a balance between the two that make it relatively easy for you to buy. Certainly, that's what the auction houses grew into. Hey, you don't have to come to the dinner. You don't have to buy the program. We will sell you what you want if you pay enough for it. Uh, and 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 look how they've grown. They've got lots of clients because there's clearly demand uh, 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 for it. So I do think on that side, yes, things will become more transparent because it brings in more buyers. Guillaume Cerruti started this, but he had made a, a big issue that they wanted the sell-through rate to rise so that when people bought stuff, they knew that it was worth buying. And in the old days, when you had half a sale pass, it kind of made <laughs> made it a bit of a risk to buy something because you might not be able to sell it later. Yeah, exactly. Later. That's a great point. I mean, uh, the, the sell-through rate, that, that sort of transition into you know a world where almost everything is like 90% sold, you know, is a completely different auction world than was just a few years ago. And yeah, it, 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 it creates a sense of confidence that uh, you need in order to, to to sell all this stuff. And that's what a good dealer does, says, hey, I'm gonna sell you this, but if you wanna sell it, I'll find another buyer. I mean, every collector I've, I've ever met says, yeah, I'd be happy to go back to the dealer with something if they'll take everything I've ever bought from them back, <laughs> not only the stuff that, you know, the auction house wants. So, I mean, it's a it's a balance for everyone. But I do think, I, I think for it to remain the large industry that it ha is and the way people have become using it as a store of value and and all, it, it almost has to become more transparent and feel more re regulated because you can't function without uh, uh, some sort of tacit agreement that we're all going to behave a little bit better. That doesn't mean there won't be bad behavior, but on the general all-purpose, you know, regular transactions, people will behave better. And I don't know about you, I get the feeling that most galleries are, are, are far more above board these days than, than before. Yeah. Oh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that when it comes to just like the, sort of the galleries that we know and deal with, yeah, you got to be pretty, pretty uh, clean in the transactions I, I, in order just to, to keep things afloat. All right. Well, the art world gets the Nate Freeman seal of approval. That's good to know. <laughs> for now. For now. Thank you for doing this, Nate. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad to know that I am right that your day is one long cocktail party. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, is it is it late enough now, Mary? It is. So, so, the sun is uh, setting and you can have your first cocktail. Excellent. Well, uh, it was such a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.